0: So tonight I'd like to speak on the wanting mind. When I start a beginning meditation class, which I do several times a year, I ask the people there to tell me what their expectations are. What are their aspirations? What do they want from the meditation? the arrange, the array of, of um, answers is what you would expect, it's I want a peaceful mind, clarity of mind, I want the lack of stress in my life, I want some peace and tranquility and calm and serenity and on and on and on, samadhis, concentration, focus. And it's as if we have this genuine want, this genuine heartfelt need. And when it goes through the mind, it's like going through a prism, P-R-I-S-M, as opposed to prison, which also has its relevance, but. And I just, remember my physics will The light goes through and then all of a sudden it goes to the prison and comes out at a different angle. Right? It comes out skewed somehow. And this genuine want or need for contentment of the heart, when it passes through the mind and the mind grasps it, it comes out as wanting. wanting, desire. It's how the mind translates that. It's the only way the mind can translate that kind of purity. And then it's off and running. And it's often running for the rest of our life. Because for most part we don't really assess whether our needs are genuinely being met in terms of our deepest aspirations. Now, at some point, we begin to realize that that wanting is the problem, that it keeps us from surrendering to what is. As long as I want, as long as that need is driving my actions, my thoughts, I am never content. And contentment is my genuine heart's need. And I just, I think it's going to do it. And so I, I perform the activity, achieve the desired results. Reap the benefits of the want. Grab the desired ends. And then there may be a moment's pause. And I'm off wanting again. Well, I just didn't get enough of it, we say. Or I didn't try hard enough. Or I didn't get the really good one. I just got the mediocre one. And at some point, we have to come to the point where we say this wanting is useless. It's just useless. Like your endless chatter is useless. Who would wanna read a book about what went through your mind in the last Useless. (laughs) Useless. <laughs> so I'd like to talk tonight about that wanting, where something is missing, something's lacking, something's needed, something. And there's specific wanting that is, I want this or that, relationship material things, a good job, whatever. And then there's this generalized wanting, almost an attitude or view of wanting. Have you ever gone to the refrigerator and just opened the door? (laughs) Yeah, that's the one. (laughs) And I think it's important to understand the derivation of this wanting because It's partially induced culturally. Now, this is an apolitical speech, but we need to look at the politics, we need to look at the influence of the culture, objectively. And in a market-driven culture that is trying to sell you something in order for it to to perpetuate itself, (laughs) It needs you to want. In fact, I read somewhere where the average person going through the average day watching TV and seeing the billboards and reading the advertisements gets 16,000 inputs of how you're lacking in the course of a week. 16,000. And every time, what they're hoping to do is the right formula, the right content on the ad, to make you feel, to, in, to enact, to initiate a feeling in you, oh, I'm lacking this. I'm lacking this. I, I need to have this. Now you do that 16,000 times for 52 weeks, for 50 years, What do you think you're going to feel like? And so we just really need to get a sense of how, it wouldn't be so bad if we just kept the wanting to external objects, oh yeah, I do need a better home. It would be bad enough, believe me. I'm not trying to say it's good. But we don't what happens is it becomes an internal declaration of ourself i am lacking i am inadequate and now we've really got a problem we internalize the message and it produces this inward sense of insufficiency, this gnawing pain that most of us feel where the assumption is that there's something wrong with me. now this background white noise of insufficiency that sort of plays itself just it's kind of hums just sort of hums in the background there you can you can when you sit down you're quiet you hear the white noise of your thoughts many of those messages about about desire need fulfillment, craving, it's, it's, it's a ticker tape right through your day, and this slowly engenders a kind of attitude, a sort of way that you look out into the world, you can feel it, huh? Now it can it doesn't just stop with wanting, but it can turn into self-pity or melancholy, because we never really satisfy the wants, and there's a kind of self-pity or failing of life. Hmm? Or there can be kind of an anxiety, a residual fear of not having, not getting enough, kind of a free-floating anxiety in relationship to that wanting. Just. Or it can turn into kind of a dullness where you've tried and tried and still there's this wantingness. this creates this kind of dullness of spirit or lethargy of drifting. It's just that drifting sense. And we bring that white noise of wanting into our sitting and we just kind of drift. And we say, oh, this is boring. It's boring because our expectations aren't being met. And often the expectations are being seen through the wanting. just drifting just you know, think what boredom means boredom means that there's something that's coming up something that's is yet to be that will really engage my aliveness because I don't have I don't feel the aliveness now and so my aliveness deadens with the expectation of something which will, may become that will be more exciting than this. And it can foster a kind of sense of dependency. tell, tell me tell me what I don't know because I'm not adequate enough to know, you must know. You must have the answer. And as long as this white noise of wanting is outside of ourselves, outside of our practice, it drives the practice. We don't even realize that boredom has anything to do with wanting. We just feel bored and uninterested. (coughs) Or we just feel lethargy. Or we just feel dullness. Or we just feel kind of a hyper-anxiety that's back there. Because we haven't brought the wanting into the practice. We don't know the wanting is even there. Knowing the wanting is there is the all-important step and allowing the practice to gain interest. It gains interest in what and where it's enslaved. That's the heart, interest comes from the heart. When we see where we're enslaved, whoa, I am interested. There's no boredom in that. And if we're bored, it means that the wanting is just white, white noise, not even being seen. Have a cartoon some kind of creature that looks kind of like a rabbit. And the first frame of the cartoon says, I am one in the now. Next frame, the only reality is the present. I am totally alive in this moment. Now is the only reality I need. This moment is eternal. Maybe he should give a Dharma talk. (laughs) (laughs) This moment is unending nothing is but now and then the second to last frame you hear a ding and the last frame says dang microwave popcorn takes forever (laughs) (laughs) I mean we we don't even realize that we're waiting the background noise is back there we don't even realize we're waiting but you know what This is how you know you're waiting. (laughs) (laughs) It's not the ding of the popcorn (laughs) microwave. And then it's, I could sit forever. cause the background noise to stop for a moment the wanting the desire was dr- was the irritant and as soon as you get your desired object the irritation stops focus in on what a desire feel like feels like sometimes it's awful i as a monk You're completely celibate. So, but that doesn't stop your mind from conjuring up all sorts of things, and you—it just is so obvious that if you play with any <coughs> images or sexual ideas, it hurts. I mean, because there's just there's absolutely no outlet for it, so it's just it hurts. And so, for a while, you don't have anything to do, and you just start thinking about things, and then you uh, this hurts you learn a lot about desire through that. You just stop it. You just drop it. You let it go. This hurts. When you know it hurts and you let it go, that's discriminatory wisdom. That's wisdom that lets it go. We haven't, for the most part, hurt enough or felt the hurt enough because the desire is not a comfortable mind state. So I will. I say that I often say that um, we have to know the pain of a mind state, and we have to know its payoff in order to know it completely. And the payoff of the desire is the heightened intensity and the expectation that something is going to come to you that is going to, for a moment, feel complete. It feels complete in the sense that it eliminates the irritant. We eliminate the irritant in a moment. We don't have the desire, force in our mind. We go, wow. And then we invest the object that allowed that momentary cessation of the irritant with a lot of value. but it was the end of the desire that was the real satisfying link. And the pain, that's the payoff, the pain is the fact that it hurts to have it. And sometimes, if the desire is strong enough, there's nothing that can satisfy it. That's called addiction. I was once doing a, a long backpacking trip. Christine and I were just talking about sort of the end of our hiking days since we've gotten older, but this is when I was much, much younger, Uh, up in the High Sierras Mountains in California doing the uh, John Muir Trail. And I was hiking for one month. And uh, I was with my brother and my sister. We were just hiking this trail and we would spend much of the day talking about what we didn't have with us. Oh, I I wish, can you wait until, can you believe, uh, the first thing I'm going to do (laughs) when, and we just, yeah, we would just relish the passing back and forth of these desires. So 30 days later, we descend the mountain, and of course we head to a buffet. And I remember eating, literally so much (laughs) that you could feel the olive (laughs) protruding from it. And the desire not stopping. Uh, One more bite, ugh, (laughs) ugh. And then waiting in agony for three hours so that it will abate so I could feed it again. And it went on, day after day. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> it's absolutely true. <laughs> Desire out of control. Such a momentum of mine that even the pleasure that it seek isn't sufficient to abate the momentum. Perhaps we've all had experiences in that. Now it's interesting because behind the second level of pain, first level is just the desire itself is so painful, the second level of pain is the pain of insufficiency, the white background, white noise. That continues to play its theme regardless of what it is that we consume or have or own because that background white noise can't be satisfied because that's about me who i am i am insufficient we try in vain to fill that insufficiency from outside but the best we can do is to seek out the pleasure the pleasure of some form of entertainment or consumption or something and for a moment that pleasure covers over that insufficiency. Just briefly. And we don't feel so awful about ourselves for a moment. I um, worked with Eaters, uh, Overweight Anonymous, I think it was called. Anyway, they invited me in to offer some meditation. And I uh, just spoke about um, noticing whether the hunger they were feeling was the hunger of appetite or the hunger of self-insufficiency. sufficient Just notice that. And it was like a revelation to these women and men that there was their hunger was being, they were trying to feed their hunger of, of how they felt about themselves. And so much of our pursuit, so much of our longing, so much of our attempt and yearning in the world is being, being motivated by our sense of inadequacy. And there's nothing that anyone can do except you to satiate that, no matter what you receive. You think even if it's praise that you're after, and sometimes that insufficiency seeks out praise, praise, you you just don't think they've seen who you really are. They're giving you praise. You hear the praise, and you thank them perhaps for it. But inside, you say, "Well, if they really knew who I was, they really knew it." And so, even if you get a thousand praises, and then one person says something negative about you, oh, they know, and that one's one. That's what sticks. Oh, that hurts. Oh. Because they've seen you. Oh. You can feel it. The praises driven by this inward poverty that can't that can't be that can't be covered over. So to understand how mindfulness, how awareness, first allows the wanting to be known. First just to know it, okay, okay, wanting. We have to be extraordinarily steady in ourselves, not to immediately put that wanting into the Groove of action. We just hold the wanting. I was at a retreat uh, at Cloud Mountain, which is a local retreat center in near Seattle, <coughs> and uh, all the uh, room, or the um, dormitories and the dining room and the meditation hall are separated. And there's a little path that goes from the dining hall the meditation hall and you pass this little shrine of a buddha and it's a very pretty little shrine and people come and they put very um you know pretty leaves or sticks or pretty rocks or just you know just a little offerings to the buddha so i had just eaten the midday meal and i have a sweet tooth and they weren't serving sweets. So I was walking back to the meditation hall <laughs> and somebody had put a wrapped sweet, a mil, mil, little Milky Way <laughs> at the Buddha. So I'm walking, I'm walking there and I said Buddha doesn't need that sweet. (laughs) It's ridiculous to offer that Buddha that sweet. And the only thing that protected me was the sense that I was on a retreat and I had been, mindfulness was there. So it was like this Lightning th- bolt that hit me <laughs> and grounded out my feet. And so it was interesting though because there was a real huge one. W- <gasps> uh. <laughs> and then you walk by it. And then when I told this story at Cloud Mountain, and then people started piling sweets <laughs> by the Buddha. <laughs> So the pain of the lacking, we try to cover over with the pleasure that we seek. Remember we were talking, we've been talking about Vedna feeling, that pleasure can be derived from experience, or is contained in experience is better to say, is a conditioned reference for that experience. And so when that experience arises, so does the pleasure element. And we seek that element as a form or a way to disguise the pain, to hide the pain of the insufficiency. For a moment, there is abatement of both the desire that has been driving it and the insufficiency, white noise, that's behind even that. So you can see how much charge and importance pleasure has to us. This is, this is the mind's track through the prison towards contentment. This is how the mind is seeking its way towards completion. This is the, this is the way, the only way the mind know, knows to come to wholeness, is try to consume, try to bring what's outside inside consumption, ingest. It's interesting. Take a sweet, take a sweet or something or a piece of food that you like and just chew it and then spit it out. See if it's satisfactory. It's not. Even though the pleasure is there, it's the ingestion somehow. That's why chewing gum just doesn't quite get it. So we have to begin to see, and this is really where I want to go from the top, So, and this is the third level of pain, and that's the pain of separation, the pain of distance. Because the wanting is created in the fracturing and the living in two worlds. Now you have two worlds, you have duality. You have me and the thing I want. You have the desired object and the er of the object. And in order to maintain the wanting, I have to have two worlds, I have to. And since the only way the mind thinks, in terms of completion, is to create two worlds and try to bring those two worlds together through the assimilation of the wanting and the ingestion of the other. It's an attempt, but it goes nowhere. You see, the two worlds One is the world of reality in which the desired object is not here. The other is the fictitional world, the imaginative world in which the object does live within the fantasy of my mind. And instead of living with the deficient in the world that's deficient, I move to the world of the fantasy. Which is, where is the wanting? It's an expectation. It's something that has yet to come. It's not here. It's not here and now. It has yet to be. So there's a gap, a space, a time element that I have to keep living and forcing time into the equation of the moment in order for there to be the fulfillment of the moment through the fulfillment of the desire. I force time into the moment, the future. What's going to happen? When I will be satisfied? And of course the activity and actions of filling that gap between the two times, the time of now and the time of the future, is really what we have called life for most of us. Leaning into, always leaning, expectation, not this, not this. It's always not this. It's never about this. It's how this can get me to that. Never about this. I was at home a couple, two or three weeks ago, and I um, was, I had, Had a dish of cereal, had all my granola and cut up my banana, and I went to the refrigerator and there wasn't any milk. And my wife, partner, who uh, is always looking very compassionately at my health, had decided to buy soy milk instead. Now, pressed beans on my cereal just didn't sound, feel very (laughs) Now, I'm not, nothing against you soy milk drinkers, but it just doesn't, <laughs> doesn't quite do it. <laughs> so, I well, there's nothing else. I had the cereal poured and the banana cut, and I, I felt like throwing it out, but I poured the soy milk on there, and I kept thinking, this, 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 and it This isn't going to do it, and I tasted it, and I tasted it in relationship to how I knew it could be if it had milk on it. And it didn't live up to that. (laughs) But I wasn't letting in the now because I constantly held the tension with the now in relationship to the desire of what I really wanted on this milk. And then I said, wait a second here. I'm not even tasting the soy milk. Let me just taste it. I was going to say it was good, but I, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> but the point is that when I really tasted it, okay, not in relationship to the desire, but in a relationship to itself, it was what it was, just was what it was. You know but but this wine isn't 1942 vintage and that isn't Ohio corn that's and this isn't you see how we just constantly do that and there's always a friction always a lacking always a limitation why because the the future is never And so we force the world, it's so, so interesting. We force the heart out of the equation, that's what we do. Because the mind buzzes with desire. And that's the only world we know. So we just live through the door of the mind. And yet the now, the present moment, always exists, just beyond the, actually not even beyond, including all, with all the buzz, with all the white noise, with all of the turbulence. So completion cannot happen through objectifying the world, but by entering the world through letting go when I constantly objectify, when I constantly put it out there as something to gain, there can be no sense of completion, ever. Whether the object is eventually gained or not. And the art of practice is as close to us as our willingness to surrender our resistance. Let's move to that space. Now, where is there anything lacking? So letting go, not through force of will, but through understanding. When we have oriented ourselves to the problems at hand, and we release any resistance to those problems, the problems are assimilated back into the wholeness of heart, back into the wholeness of world into the now where they belong. As long as there's resistance, they're held out as objective objects, something yet to be, something yet to obtain. That's what resistance does, is it forms the two worlds in which I am now chasing after this. But with the absence of resistance, the worlds collide together once more. All of the defilements are ended. Cannot survive in a non-objective space. Well, here it is. Why isn't it good enough? What in this space is lacking? It is often because the fear we have of entering the silence of the space. The resistance we have to silence itself because in silence, which is what holds the present moment, we are unformed. We are undefined. Silence doesn't define us, it's true. We're not defined. It doesn't define anything. So everything comes back together. And in a moment the desire occurs and is not seen for what it is, the world splits apart. And I chase after it. And the moment I come back to stillness, there's just this. So the practice is starting with the knowing of what's happening to us. That's the orientation, the direction of stillness. That is the journey into stillness, starting with knowing what's occurring. And then surrendering any resistance to that which is occurring. just to say yes to it, okay, okay. Let sit for a minute or two.